This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This is Uncensored Parenting. Talking about the shit no one else will. You've got questions? We've got, well, we've got perspectives. Hello, everyone. On today's show, we have Amy Severson, who is a registered dietitian nutritionist. Amy's work focuses on body positivity, fat acceptance, and intuitive eating through a social justice lens. Amy also focuses on providing safe and inclusive care for LGBTQIA community. Amy is also the co-author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this journey of nutrition? Yeah, I actually went like my first degree was nutrition. I went straight into school to become a dietitian. Um, it was low key because I had an eating disorder and I thought being a dietitian wouldn't help me do it better. Unfortunately, that's not an uncommon story. Wow. Um, it's like I, the statistic is pretty high of dietitians who have some form of disordered eating. Um, a little, a little sad. Um, but by the time I finished school and finished my internship, I was in recovery from my eating disorder and had found um, intuitive eating and health at every size, which really resonated with all the values I already held. And I decided to find a way to fit that into my life and my practice and the money I'd already invested in being a dietitian. So yeah, I kind of wanted to keep that going. <laughs> well, that's a pretty interesting fact that many dietitians have had experienced some type of eating disorder, although I'm sure it is common anyways, because eating disorders, especially in Western society are probably pretty common. Yeah. Yes, they are indeed. So how did you come to co-author the book, um, how to raise an intuitive eater? Um, Subner Brooks, who is my co-author, um, and I had connected, we live probably like five hours from each other. And we had connected at a um, seminar we both attended and we'd like been in touch on social media, you know, on and off for years. And um, she had read some of the articles I'd written and we just connected and talked and sat next to each other. And um, cause I'm like, Oh, someone knows me. I'm going to sit here cause I feel safe. <laughs> um, so that's where I sat for the whole eight hour day. Um, and then a couple of months later um, she reached out because she had gotten this idea for this project and wanted a co-author and wanted someone to help bring in more perspective and more, more. Um, so it was kind of her idea. I can't take credit for that, but, um, she brought me in and 
yeah, it was really great. And you do a lot of work around um, body positivity and fat acceptance. You kind of explain to our audience what that is. Yeah. Um, I use the term fat acceptance more often, but body positivity, I think is more accessible to a lot of people because it's more understandable, but it is the idea that bodies are good. My goal is not to change anybody's body. It's not to make you fit into any specific shape or size. Fat positive is specifically to bring into the center of the picture, people who are more marginalized normally. Cause if you like look up body positive on like Instagram, you're going to get a huge array of thin blonde people in bikinis, like, (laughs) you know, proclaiming how body positive they are, which is like fine. Good for them, but not great for anyone who like is on the, you know, edges of society in general. And there's just not much good representation for anyone who's not in the conventionally attractive body in lots of, lots of intersections. So fat positivity is to center that, is to bring that into the, to the, to the idea that fat people can be attractive, can be beautiful, can have fun, can like live their life without the goal of just trying to lose weight. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think about like growing up, I, I don't think I ever had the message, so to speak, about uh, body shaming or certain sizes. There was nothing like direct But I know like just watching my parents or watching my parents' friends or watching teachers, like I noticed them and, you know, commercials and whatever, like every commercial is this like perfectly fit human being. And I remember growing up thinking like, well, why, why am I not? Like, why, why don't I have this type of body? And then it, it, it almost gets so deeply into your brain even though nobody directly taught me that, but you, the, you know, you end up paying the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember like being a teenager, looking back, I wasn't really fat. I was just chubby. Like that was just my body type. But I remember like looking for like representation of myself in like the Disney movies and stuff at the time in, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, nothing. Like even the big girls were not big. And that messes with your mind Mm -hmm. so much. And then when the only time you see bigger people is as a joke or as like, my favorite is the headless person drinking Big Gulp walking down the street on the evening news, you know, that's like dehumanized and not, you don't get to have a full personality in any of these situations. And having representation is so important. Yeah. And I think about like, I don't know if you can speak to this, but like the impact that it has on kids, you know, when they're, when there's no control of your body at that age, like the impact that it has on kids to only be seeing one ideal body type and nothing else, like what kind of impact does it have on mental health? It has a really intense impact actually, because it's everything from this is true for body size. It's also true for things like hair color and skin color. Like there's studies on little girls who think that the white dolls are prettier than the black dolls. Mm. And they're black girls. Like everyone thinks the white dolls are prettier because that's what's presented as the prettier option. And when you go through life thinking that you're not pretty, you're not like worthy of being the main character on a Disney show, it really impacts your ability to live your life and feel like you are a worthy person. And this is like one of the, one of the common 
denominators in a lot of like eating disorder development and really low self-esteem development. And I know like as a parent of a little girl, like I know that's one thing I want my kid to avoid, um, all of those things. <laughs> and it's really easy to fall into that trap with the way the world is set up and has been set up for so long. Yeah. Especially too, because I, um, I actually just recently started looking into eating disorders over the last year. And I was fascinated to find out that it, it doesn't have to always look like how they've presented it on TV actually, which is, is you eat too much, you throw it up or, you know, you don't eat anything at all. That those were the two perspectives I had. And I was actually shocked to see how, you know, any type of restricting or obsessing over food when you think about it all day can be constituted as an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. The fine line between disordered eating, which is like the subclinical level Mm -hmm. of eating disorders and disordered eating is a fine line. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally, with the experience I have in the eating disorder field and the research I know that exists, I consider dieting of any kind, that intentional restriction, especially to change your body, but even just intentional restriction is disordered eating. Mm-hmm. It might never tip into an eating disorder for a person because they might not have that hard wire, but it really could, and it could impact anybody. And I think you're absolutely right that there is this like common trope of eating disorders. Of, like you look a certain way, you behave a very specific way. And it actually misses out on a huge amount of people who don't show up like that and are still at massive risk for pretty much all the same physical and psychological consequences of eating disorders, which Mm -hmm. are massive. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, too, I mean, it brings up the good point of like the impact now here on kids, because I think about how many times have, I mean, even myself, I'm guilty of this, but like, I'm on a diet, so I can't eat that, or I'm trying not to eat this or, you know, and it bleeds into the kids and our own insecurities and struggles around food if we're not being conscious about how we're presenting to our kids, this is really going to, it's going to continue the cycle. That's something we talk about a lot in the book is the idea of mirroring. Like you can talk to your kids about anything all day, every day, and they'll absorb some of it. You know, they'll hear you. And the number one way that they learn how to live their lives is by seeing you live your life. Like, I know we, we talk about that a lot in like relationships, like you want your relationship to be something you don't want to show this is how love is. So go out and be in this type of like maybe abusive relationship or something. We talk about that pretty openly, but it's true for this too. You know, like I, example I use all the time is I grew up with every woman in my family over the age of like 35, cut their hair really short. And so when I was a kid, I was convinced like you just, well, people didn't have short hair. Like, (laughs) I guess, and even now, like I'm in my thirties now and I'm like, am I supposed to cut my hair short? Like, (laughs) Is it weird to have not short hair now? And I told my my partner that the other day and he was like, you would look really weird with short hair. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> like, I don't actually want to do it's it. Not for you, yeah. yeah. But because everyone had short hair, it's like, well, that's just what adults do, right? And everyone in my family also dieted. And that was just like the expectation was you are unhappy with your body. You're constantly going in and out of diets. And that's just what you do. And when, especially, which is normal in a genetic situation, you look like your family, you know, Mm -hmm. like I didn't look 
radically different from my family because we all have the same body. Mm-hmm. And so when all of my family talked about how bad their body was, how fat they were, how ugly they were, how terrible it was. Yeah. It wasn't really possible for me to look in the mirror and be like, yeah, this is okay though. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it really was, it really, and this is what we see is that mirror of, oh, you look like me and you hate yourself. So obviously I'm going to too. Mm-hmm. Or you hate me. Yeah. And that's the beginning of the whole mental health piece of and the self-esteem and the confidence right there. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like it's like such a societal thing too. Like diets are just so popular. It's like, we always have this new diet that comes around that everybody's trying for the longest time. And I even remember growing up, it's like, you know, when my parents went on a diet, it, it meant I had to go on the diet too with them. And it's like, you know, I think about these kids, I hear them in, in school all the time being like, yeah, my parents are on this diet, so I can't eat these foods now. And we restrict mm-hmm. our kids because we're also trying to restrict ourselves and don't really give them that choice. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't, they don't learn to nourish their body based on what they need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a big uh, struggle. Do you find that there's a difference in like genders that you see this more than others? For me, it's like a, as a male, I didn't have a lot. I don't feel like I had a lot of body image issues, but I also was always, I could eat whatever and my body didn't really change a whole lot. That's just how I'm structured. Yeah. That's a fair question. It is, I think, statistically more common in um, folks raised as socialized as females, as AFABs, girls in particular. It's not uncommon in boys. It can show up a little bit differently sometimes, but sometimes it's also very classical, that very restrictive going for a thin body. But it can also be you feel too small and you want to be bigger. It's not uncommon. It just, I think the statistics show it's more common. It is actually even more common in trans or non-binary identified Mm. folks for lots of reasons. There's a lot of risk factors in there, but it is more common in the queer community overall. Um, But everyone can get it. Gender, body size, age. um, Yeah. And it, I mean, hearing you say that, is there like this linking component to identity that our body image is, is how we identify who we are? Yeah, it really can be. It's not true for everybody, but it is really true for a lot of people. Yeah. This very, like, you don't feel at home in your body. You don't feel safe in your body. You don't feel welcome in your own body. You feel at odds with your own body. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why, one of many reasons why we really encourage parents to be as accepting as possible of any, like, LGBTQ child. Because having just even, like, that acceptance, if no one else accepts you, if that acceptance is there, you're significantly more likely to accept yourself. Right. And are safer in a lot of ways, including from eating disorders. It's not the only factor and it's right. not going to like the most protective. It's much more complicated. Yeah. yeah. So complicated, but it is a really protective factor is feeling like you can trust your body. Just hearing that you can trust your body. I think that's the thing I never, you know, that's something I'm relearning myself now is like the sensations that arise are telling me something. And, you know, I grew up as an athlete and so I played sports year round. And the big message was to push yourself past your limit, right? And to keep getting better. It was it was almost idolized. And I think about what that did for me in, in terms of my eating eventually, because I 
push my, myself past limits because it was like I didn't know what my limit was because I wasn't in tune with my body. I wasn't trusting it. Mm-hmm. That's such a common thing. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. 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 It's, I think there, I know so many adults who go through this process, like, because we have so many things that have disconnected us from that trust in our body. And yeah, sports can be one of those. Totally. totally. (laughs) I even think about too, like we've, we've done, you know, podcasts on like consent and all of the things. And some, that's something else that we've come to be aware is how we teach our own kids. Like if I'm telling you to hug somebody or I'm telling you to have dinner with me right now, even though you're like, I'm not hungry. And I'm like, eat your food, finish your plate. Like I'm essentially teaching them not to listen to their body, which is really important that we begin to become aware of. Because it's impacting kids. Absolutely. And those are the things like, yeah, I think that the like cultural conversation around teaching consent to your kids is a lot more common these days than the cultural conversation around consent around the broccoli on the dinner plate. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Uh But it's the same. (laughs) It's the same. (laughs) It is the same. And you know, it's hard because I think sometimes like I, I, this is even true. Like I think for our kids, so our kids are like super different with eating. Like I would say my son's into like meat and really much more dense foods. And then our daughter's like carbs and light and she could eat sugar all day. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's interesting how even there's sometimes I'm like, Oh, I want you to eat vegetables. Like, I don't want you to be eating this all day. But I, I come to realize then it's because I'm worried that she's going to end up being unhealthy at some point. And it's like, how do we teach our kids to really be intuitive and eat? Like she could be eating for what her body needs. I don't, I don't know. Um, so that kind of brings me into the question of like, how do you teach kids to be intuitive about their yeah. eating? We talk a lot in the book. We talk about it from every, like starting at every stage. I very firmly believe that there is no place where you've gone too far, like where you're too far in and well, they're just going to do this now it's, there's always a chance to kind of turn it around a little bit and bring in the intuition to it. And the trust, the trust is real. The body trust is like the key to it, but it really, oh, my favorite example is like when you're teaching your kids to walk, cause we're not, we're not, our goal isn't to give kids free reign of everything. We're not going to bring them into a grocery store and be like, go off, go get everything you want out of here. And that's what you're going to eat for the next week. It's to create safety and structure while letting them learn their body in that space, it's like learning to walk. We're not going to like set them loose in the street and be like, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're okay. We're going to like keep them safe and contained in places where they're not going to fall down the stairs or run into the street, but we're not going to like stop them every time we have a fear that they're going to falter because they are going to get it wrong sometimes. Like yeah. I absolutely always will remember the time at my kid's birthday party when she was like five or six and ate like six cupcakes and felt really sick after. Hmm. And I was like, Oh, that was a choice. Yeah. (laughs) How are we doing? (laughs) Yeah. And how does that feel now? (laughs) And like, also as an adult, yeah, I've done the same thing. Like whether it's food or alcohol or other things or like, Oh, that was a choice I made and maybe I won't make it again. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, if I just live my life of don't overindulge in alcohol, you're going to feel it the next day. I'd be like, you don't know anything, you know, (laughs) which is why I did it as a 21 year old, you know? And so we can do the same thing to our kids. They can learn that. And they are kids. They are missing a lot of the like neural connections to make these really quickly and 
you know, smoothly. So they're going to do it more than once. And that's not a problem. We can just keep letting it happen Mm. with that like structure and trust. And like in the structure, like what we can do, like meals, for example, we don't have to like only make them the only foods that they'll eat. We don't have to completely change our entire lives. So our kids will eat everything on their plate. It's because that sounds boring, to be honest. Um, It's to always make sure there's some food that they'll eat, like always have some sort of acceptable food. Like tonight, honestly, we're having butter chicken for dinner. My kid, I love spicy butter chicken. My kid is still in a like, wow, pepper is spicy, spicy face. Yeah, yeah, we know that face. <laughs> Frankly, <laughs> waiting for it to end, but it's not there yet. Yeah. So tonight, like she's going to have like the safe food for her is going to be white rice. I'll probably make her some chicken because I have extra chicken. And I'm like, yeah, I'll cook it without sauce. On. Yeah. But I'm not going to force her to eat butter chicken. I'm not going to force her to eat these things that she doesn't want to eat. My goal is to get her full and to have her go to bed, not hungry. And that can be with whatever she chooses on the table to fill her plate with. Because also one of the things that's important, especially like including foods that you like to eat, but maybe they don't is, oh, this is my favorite facts. It takes kids on average 18 to 20 exposures to a food before they will even try it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) And that exposure can literally be like, oh, it's in the kitchen. Like it's here. You could potentially choose it. It's on mom and dad's plate. Mm. I smell broccoli. You know, it doesn't have to be like, now put it in your mouth and just try it a little bit. It's, it's here. It's a thing. And the more we normalize it, the more it's like not this big, scary, you know, yeah. what is the tree on my plate thing. So, okay. So we're like, oh, this is like the moment where we always have these like, oh, wow, we just good parents right here. <laughs> but, so, we all. right. We, we, you know, we've been trying to like add variety. We like make our stuff, but like we've been kind of in like, well, you at least have to have it on your plate or at least try it. But now I'm realizing that that's maybe not... Is, is that bad to do or like what? And I love this idea, though, of letting them choose. It's almost um, this beautiful way to give control to them without, you know, um, and like keeping it in the structure, so to speak. But can you just speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I I think putting it on the plate is totally fine. Like that can be an exposure and it's just it's on the plate. You don't have to eat it. Yeah. I am 50-50 on it, like adventure bites or, you know, the, like the, the no thank you bites. Um, I think that they can have a time and place for the, some things and some kids will not react super poorly to it, but some kids like that can be the biting point, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think it's also some kids with some foods that can be the fighting point. Yeah. It's how that is for you is up to you, you know, where, where that is. If your kid is pretty open to like taking a bite, whatever, if they're not, then don't force it. You don't need to yeah. do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause it really turns into a power struggle versus yes. like teaching them to nourish themselves. Yeah. And it also becomes a kind of an age thing. Like my kid is at the age now, like we went to dinner at a friend's house last week and we didn't have any control over the food that was served. There was some food there that she would eat, but she also didn't want to be rude. So she ate a pulled pork sandwich for the first time ever. Wow. And like she was like super anti pulled pork until that moment. And she loved pro pulled pork now, but she ate the whole thing. And it was like, we left and we're like, oh my God, she ate an entire sandwich. Like she didn't say anything. And it was because she didn't want to be rude mm. to her friends, you know? And it's just because she's at the age now where she like 
could understand that and didn't want to like make an issue out of it, which was nice. Like I appreciated that. Yeah. But does she do that at home on a regular basis? No, of course no. not. <laughs> because they're comfortable with you. They don't care if they make you. Like I definitely made chicken pot pie last night and she ate the chicken out of it. And then was like, I'm done. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I think about this aspect too, because I feel like my kids do this too. And it's like, did I teach them to do this? Because, you know, I feel like both of our kids will eat it probably more so my son than, than my daughter, but it like, he doesn't want to be rude. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to be rude. But then he like eats something that his body really doesn't want. And so there's like this aspect of like, how do you balance the not being rude to somebody and like really honoring your body in that sense? Yeah. That's a good question. I think having like frank conversations and this is, inc- I think this can kind of push against some of our own beliefs about like rudeness and stuff too. It's like, if you don't like a food, if I don't like a food at someone's house, I don't necessarily make myself eat the whole thing. You know, yeah. we don't have to make our kids do it either. If they're willing to try it to like cushion it, that's fine. But they also don't have to, like if yeah. this tastes too spicy or tastes, I don't know, not good, they don't have to eat it. And kind of having that conversation can be really important. Um, it's such like a, it's, it's complicated because it is like social norms versus mm-hmm. like getting and getting enough food and all those situations is kind of hard to navigate sometimes, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like even like hearing you say that, like I've been at people's houses before and been like, Oh no, thank you. I don't want that. And it's like, Oh, okay. But then if it's like the kids, it's like, well, you should just try it. And it's like, <laughs> we force the kids to do it. I think about this in families a lot, you know, like if the families get together, like, that's the big thing of like, well, just try a little bit. And, you know, we yeah. really force it upon people instead of just say, letting them be like, no, thank you. And mm-hmm. letting it be like, what? yeah, it's almost sometimes it's almost like we take it personally, like, oh, you don't like my cooking. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's just like, that might not be my jam. Like, I, you know, I know I think about like, I grew up on certain foods, right? And when I went to people's homes that did a lot of, I don't even know how to describe this, but like did a lot of bland cooking and (laughs) like lots of gross things on there. Like it would be like, I was like devastated and I was like, oh, I'm going to be starving later tonight. And I still struggle with that. Right. It's like the truth is, is that our kids are not going to like our cooking at times. They're just not. It's, It's not because we didn't or we didn't cook it well enough. It just could mean that they're not interested in what we made and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned like super, super intensely. My kid does not like casseroles and I am okay. done. Like, which is fine with me. I'm not that white person. It's fine. My life is not worse without casseroles (laughs) and she just won't eat them. Like, even if it's something she likes, she won't in any other form, you know, she's like, no, yeah, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Yeah. And casseroles, you, I think the hard part too, is like, it's all mixed together. It's not like you can put pieces together yourself, yeah. which also then leads me to like, what is it good to have variety on the table? Like you were saying, like safe foods just around like things that, you know, they'll eat. So they will give themselves nutrients, some new foods possibly, but it is it good to have like fruits, vegetables, like proteins, grain, like everything, or what's the suggestion for that? I think it's good to have a general variety, but you don't need to like kill yourself to do it. You know, like 
having like a general meal is good. If it's got some fat, some protein, some carb, maybe a vegetable thrown in there. If you don't have a vegetable or a fruit, you're fine. Like no one's going to die over this. It's fine. It's really not that crucial. And if you're missing one of those elements for whatever reason, it's also fine. Like that happens for so many reasons. Having those, those things on in general kind of just gives more opportunities for that to happen and for enoughness to happen because protein and fat help with satiety, carbs help with energy. We like all those things, but you don't need to like, I don't know, make a gourmet meal every night or like a you know massive meal every night to try and hit all those points. It needs to be done within your ability and your time frame and your scope. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's, okay, now I want to get to the, the good stuff. Um, <laughs> what, not that that was a good stuff, but what about like pop, not soda mm-hmm. pop? I always say it's pop, pop. For everybody else, it's soda, but it's okay. But, uh, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast. Wait, wait, you, how did you grow up, Amy? What? I grew up with pop. It was pop. Yes. But then, but now it's soda. Oh, I call it, it soda. I, I moved because... from the Pacific Northwest to the Midwest. Yeah, and okay. That's now fine. I will forever be a pop person <laughs> till the end of time. So, you know, something that we um, have tried doing with our kids in the past is like, you know, it's your choice how much you have during this time. And there's sometimes we're like, okay, enough with the pop. Like, and we don't like always have pop around. But now, especially since my son is older, he buys it because <laughs> he's like, you're not buying it for me. I'm going to go buy it. <laughs> um, how do we present these fun foods to kids and have them know their body to like stop when it, especially around like the idea of like, and and maybe this plays into the whole culture thing, but like the addiction of like, if I have one pop, you know, and you keep having pop um, and maybe it's not even addiction. That's all culturalized anyways. But like, what are your, can you share some thoughts around like more play foods, foods that are, I guess, less in nutritious aspect? Like, yeah. how do you do that? That is a really common space where people get like kind of like nervous and a little bit mucked up in this whole process with it. And I think one of the most, and this is whether it's soda or it's any other, <laughs> or it's any other of those like foods you might call junk foods you might qualify into that that group. It really is about normalizing the existence of those things. The soda is a can be a little bit different in a couple aspects. One because it's a sugar drink, it can cause cavities if you're not careful. So like some awareness around that, like don't drink it right before bed. Actually don't brush your teeth directly after drinking it either. Cause the acid can kind of make mm. your teeth more break downable. Eh, there's some things, but also like the other one I was thinking about with soda is caffeine. Like caffeine is addictive. So if you're drinking a bunch of it, you could be a little reliant on it. And that's totally up to you and how you feel about that particular, um, situation as a caffeine addict it's fine (laughs) Fine. I'm okay but uh other than that like it is just like any other of those foods and yeah what we really want to do with it is normalize it 
Because when it's like, okay, you can have candy bar, you can have a cookie, you can have a soda, but only one, like you only get one today and that's it. It kind of can create this, I don't know, like extra reward out of it. Mm. Uh, it gives, it get, makes it bigger than it is because it's, mm. it's off limits. It's limited. It's special. And it almost creates the obsession. It's like the whole mm-hmm. idea of, of being on a diet and wanting this one thing so badly. Yes. Like it becomes like chocolate cake becomes so much bigger when you haven't had chocolate cake in six yeah. months. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, I can't control myself around chocolate cake. Yeah. Um, but if you allow yourself to eat it whenever you want, you're like, Oh, I'm really bored. Yeah. And I don't have anything else. Yeah. <laughs> and this is true for all of these things as well. And kids can have a slightly different experience than adults in this process, mainly because like I said earlier, they don't have all the, you know, prefrontal cortex connections to like, understand like, oh, I feel this way because of this thing six hours ago. And that takes practice and time to develop, but they will figure it out. And especially as we, if nothing else, they'll figure out that they want other food, you know, and that like M&Ms are going to stick around. So you don't need to eat only M&Ms for every meal. It can be scary at first if it has been off limits, because it can look just like it would for us where it's really exciting yeah, and getting eaten a lot. But then it kind of tends to taper off for most kids. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that did that with my son. He wanted chicken nuggets like every night. And we're like, man, we're the, you know, we're the worst parents letting him eat chicken nuggets every (laughs) night. And then it was like, at one point he'll get sick of it and won't want it anymore. And that is a true statement. Like he hasn't eaten those since. And he actually now has more of a variety of food. Like he's willing to eat so much more and it like happened overnight. And it was like, wow, that's, you know, the benefit of of sometimes letting them yep. indulge. Kids who are like, have more of an intuitive relationship with foods when they're kids are less likely to be picky eaters when they're adults mm. versus kids that are like forced to eat a bigger variety or pushed against the pickiness that is really normal for kids to display. They're more likely to be picky as adults. Yeah. And, Cause yeah, it's like what you described like the chicken nuggets is we all, we describe us dietitians call it a food jag and it's the weirdest word, but it just means that they get obsessed with the food for a period of time and they're normal. That's normal all throughout childhood. Like mm, we went through a chicken nugget phase and now my kid eats like two at a time and is like, I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll throw away more, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it just like, it changed like peanut butter and jelly is one that comes up a lot for people. Mm-hmm. Or, um, my kid is currently on a, the soup dumplings from Trader Joe's. That's awesome. like every meal. It's all she wants. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, it's very specific, but she'll get bored of them eventually and stop eating them. Yeah. They're fine. It's just random. And I can't send them to her to school with her, which is unfortunate. Yeah. That, that is really normal. And as parents, it can feel like, Oh my God, like they're getting no variety. They are like going to lose out on all these nutrients. And like, if you're really worried about like vitamin and mineral consumption, give them a multivitamin, but for the most part, they're going to grow out of it and be fine. And kids tend to balance over time anyway. Like they don't get all of their nutrients. Actually all humans do this. We don't get all of our nutrients in a day. We get it over a period of time yeah. because we aren't like a 24 hour timer. Yeah. That's just a construct. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't just eat. And then all of a sudden here we have nutrients. It's gone the next day. Yeah. yeah. Weird. But how it works. Yeah. <laughs> and like you mentioned um, the addiction piece of like, and if that's a kind of a social cultural thing, I would say, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's very like we've we've kind of studied it at this point, and the way we've tried to study it is the studies fail 
because once given like free access to food, people stop exhibiting signs of addiction. Interesting. Um, okay. We can't keep doing the studies. And even like the, the things on like, there was some studies on rats with like Oreos and like, oh my God, this is addictive as heroin. But the rats were also deprived of food for like days ahead of time. Mm. And they're also rats and we're not. That's true for a lot of situations. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's very... There's a lot, to, a lot to show. People can't have specific incidences, and that's usually an eating disorder-related situation or very, very rare and specific, like developmental disorders. Very rare, but otherwise, it doesn't it's not there. It's restriction. Yeah, that's fascinating and makes so much sense. Like mm-hmm. it really makes sense, and I think we many of us probably don't even see that because we were raised in restriction, and. Mm-hmm became addicted, so to speak. And then we go like, well, that's going to happen to you instead of actually realizing what it would be like to just have access to food and not be restricted. Yeah. Yeah. So what if like, let's say kids are showing signs of eating disorders, like, um, or I'm sorry, I should say disordered eating, you know, just of like overeating or like, you know, just like eating too much and then being like, oh, I ate too much. Like, how do you kind of address or support your kids with kind of now learning to be more of an intuitive eater when perhaps they didn't have those skills earlier? I definitely recommend keeping an eye on any behavior that you might consider concerning, but also noticing your own bias in those situations, like especially with the overeating thing, because it will happen in the process regularly. Um, and it could just be that experimentation that they're having with themselves or that, you know, reintroduction of these more restricted foods that feel big and exciting. And it could also be a sign that restriction is happening in other places, mm. intentional or not. And we might need to check in on that. I have a, a really good friend who encourages parents to ask the question, how are you more often? Like when we feel that like concern of like, oh my God, please stop eating. Like you're going to make yourself sick. Like, how are you? How are you? Like, you okay? How's your day going? Like, mm-hmm. how was school? How are, how are these things? Because we often like redirect at some, even if it is a symptom, we redirect our concern to the symptom instead of what's actually happening. Mm. And so making a judgment about how much they're eating versus actually bringing attention to like, hey, are, is something going on? Are you feeling okay? Like, yeah. 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 For little checking in on like the like yeah oh so you ate six cupcakes at that party yeah okay so that maybe didn't feel yeah. so good how you doing now maybe yeah. we need to have some water in there somewhere yeah yeah <laughs> so like this idea then of eating feelings can kids get that too I mean can they begin to attach to food um, when they're feeling having some emotional feelings like does, is that a thing too or is that culturalized that is it's kind of a thing. It's very related to restriction overall, though. Um, a lot of studies show that it is significantly more likely to happen that stress eating, that emotional eating or connection to those foods can or is more likely to happen in people who are restricted overall, who are hungry. And if we kind of move out of that restriction space, it just kind of loses some of that power while also knowing that foods do have emotional connection, like naturally. Like I always sit, remember, I always think of like pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving. Like if someone were to offer me pumpkin pie in the middle of March, I'd be like, not really. I don't really care. Yeah. You know, but in Thanksgiving, I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> yes, I love pumpkin <laughs> <Lots>. pie. Yeah. <laughs> because it has like that connection. You know, like, I'm going to make this recipe 
because it's like got this like family connection and it brings back happy memories. Or if I'm sad, I'm going to eat the thing I used to eat when I was a kid with my mom, when I was sad, Mm. not because like I need that food necessarily, but because it's conjuring memories and feelings. Cause we do that. Yeah. And that if we can like get to a place where we can recognize that that's not really a bad thing. Um, we're allowed to see comfort, how we see comfort. If it is causing like immense distress or really interfering with your life, um, in other ways, then we enter into the place of an eating disorder and it could be causing, could be related to some other things as well. But Overall, the more we allow all food and we feed ourselves enough and let that happen, it doesn't happen to that intense degree. And we can let our kids have that too. Like yeah. people definitely ask for like a pizza night and cuddle on the couch. Cause that is, we watch, that's one of the foods we eat on the couch and watch TV. Mm-hmm. And when she's having a bad day, she's like, can we cuddle? Which means can we have pizza? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. And is, yeah. is there a genetic component to disordered eating like if 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 let's say I mean because I what I really hear is that it can be very trained and culturalized but is there a disordered eating genetic component where like if a family member has it there's a a ability to pass that on to your kids yeah they're actually doing a lot of studies on specifically anorexia typical anorexia um and the genetic component with that like the literal gene they're studying that but we do know there's a really intense genetic connection between if you have a first degree relative which is a father mother brother sister with an eating disorder you are significantly more likely to develop one and that's where like the protective factors we can add in which includes this protection from diet culture and body shame and dieting in general can really make a difference i'm it's also like like you said it's not just the one thing it's everything. Like it's kind of like the perfect storm of things that cause an eating disorder. And there's so many little ingredients that could be part of it, but there are spaces where we can provide some protection and resilience. Yeah. And that's where we lean into. Yeah. This has been very insightful. Thank you. Yeah. We always ask our, our guests on our show, like what's the best parenting advice you can give parents around this topic? Ooh. Work on your own stuff. Really reflect on your own relationship with food in your body because that's going to be the most important for what your kids see. That's true for everything, but yeah. for food specifically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if people um, have a desire to uh, learn more or access your book or get support, where can they find you online? Yeah. Well, the book is How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, found at most places. Um, we have a website. It's called intuitive eating for the number four kids.com. You can ask questions on there, connect with both Sumner and I, um, my website is prospernutritionwellness.com and I'm located in Washington. Um, and you can find me, well, I'm not super active on social media at the moment because I'm tired, but, um, <laughs> basically it, but my social media is, uh, well, my Instagram is Amy is talking. It's A-M-E-E is talking. And that's really the only place I ever am these days. So, yeah. Wonderful. Amy, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncensored Parenting. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Uncensored Parenting Podcast. We're out. Electric Acid. 
Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.